Section 3 of Here and Hereafter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne The Feast and the Reckoning Mr. Duncan Garth stood at his windows in Park Lane and looked out. He was a man of forty-five, unusually tall and broad, with a strong, clean-shaven face. "'I should rather like,' he said, "'to buy Hyde Park.' His secretary, seated at a table behind him, chuckled. "'You're quite right, Ferguson,' said Garth. "'I can't buy Hyde Park or the National Gallery. But I presume I've got the money value of both. Wouldn't you say so, Ferguson?' Ferguson was a slender young man. He looked far too young for the important post of secretary to Mr. Garth, and much younger than he really was. His scrupulous care as to his personal appearance rather amused Garth, who was careless in such matters, almost to the point of untidiness. Ferguson lit a cigarette and reflected. "'I should say not,' he said. "'Hyde Park alone, of course, you could buy, if it were for sale. I don't know what the National Gallery would figure out at. But silly people give absurd sums for paint and canvas nowadays, and there's any amount of it there. You might be able to do them both, but I should doubt it. Well, I'm going to give a luncheon party anyhow. Yes, said Ferguson dryly, you can afford to do that. Whom am I to ask? Garth consulted some memoranda on the back of an envelope. I'm going to mix him up a bit, he said. You remember that girl in the post office yesterday? The one who asked if you'd got any eyes in your head? Yes. One should not, of course, hand in telegrams to the money-order department. There was something in the bitter fury of the woman that interested me. Naturally, I don't know her name and address, but I suppose you can get that. Of course, said Ferguson, making a shorthand note. Then I must have old Lady Longshore. I should like an actor-manager, too. Could you suggest? Want him for his egotism? Quite so, said Mr. Garth, of course. Then you can't do better than Eustace Richards, a fluent talker, but you've met him. So I have, said Garth. Now I come to think of it, he will do admirably. Then I should like Archdeacon Pringle and his wife, and that chap I went to about my throat. Let me see, said Ferguson. That was Sir Edwin Goodchild, wasn't it? A good sort. I know him well. Any more? Yes, lots more. I want that man who sweeps the crossing just outside the club. He always seemed to me to be full of character. His name is Tim's, and I don't know his address, but in this case perhaps you'd better not write. See him personally. Could you get me a nice suffragette? Certainly, said Ferguson. Any particular one? No, just an ordinary plain suffragette. Also, the editor of Happy Homes. Likewise, the unconquerable Belgian. I don't know at which of the halls he's wrestling now, but you can find out. Suppose his trainer won't let him come. My dear Ferguson, you know very well how to deal with a case like that. There are solid inducements that influence opinion. True. Would you like the girl who does my nails? Your manicurist? Yes, that's an excellent idea. We shall also need a cabinet minister, a nice specimen of a modern gilded youth, and somebody prominent in the Salvation Army. The list was finally made out. Ferguson looked at it reflectively. I suppose you wouldn't ask me, too, he said. I wish to goodness you would. You can come if you've got any decent clothes, said Garth sardonically. Behave yourself decently, mind. Don't giggle. Right, said Ferguson. This will be the day of my life. You know all your servants will give notice, of course, but that doesn't matter. You can get others. 
it might simplify things said mr garth if i took some rooms at the ritz and gave the luncheon there arrange that for me will you certainly and the date you'll want a little time to get the gang together say four weeks from today mr ferguson needed all his tact to get them together lady longshore it is true expressed herself as willing to meet anybody except her own relations but eustace richards on being told of the idea of the party said quite frankly that he preferred to mix with his equals the devil of it is to find him said ferguson richards still frank admitted that in the present state of the dramatic art there might be something in that he decided to attend a suffragette was caught by the bait of the cabinet minister who subsequently refused on hearing of the suffragette sir edwin goodchild the editor of happy homes the manicure lady and colonel harriet stokes of the salvation army accepted at once mr timbs who swept the crossing outside the club was suspicious and took longer to decide look here mr ferguson he said is it strite you aren't getting anything up for me, eh? I got a good suit of clothes, so far as that goes, one I've kept for funerals so far. But I don't want to put that on for nothing. Bar and cells now, is it strite? With renewed assurances, Ferguson secured him. The lady of the post office began with a direct refusal, which started in the third person and trailed off into the first. It said that she had not the honor of Mr. Garth's acquaintance, and that she was at a loss to understand, and so on. Ferguson returned to the attack and metaphorically dangled the dowager Countess of Longshore before her. This failing, he changed his fly and caught her with the archdeacon. The archdeacon had known her father, which seemed to Miss Bostock to guarantee everything. It was not absolutely fair, as the archdeacon had a professional engagement in the north on that day and had been compelled to refuse. Mrs. Pringle, however, would be present, and, as Ferguson said in self-justification, Mrs. Pringle was more archdiaconal than any archdeacon living. The unconquerable Belgian accepted in a letter written by Mr. Savage, his trainer. Mr. Savage expressed a hope that the unconquerable would not be pressed to drink, and that he would be able to get away for a professional engagement at four o'clock. On the day appointed, Lady Longshore was the first guest to be announced. "'Came early on purpose,' she said. "'This is to be a freak lunch, so Fergie says, and I want to get the hang of it.' It's simplicity itself, said Garth. You're going to meet people whom you've never met before. Conventions that would interfere with this are abandoned. You will not, for instance, sit next to me. Nor to me, added Mr. Ferguson, but bear up. Don't be a fool, Fergie, and tell me all about it. Ferguson glanced at a plan of the table. On your right hand, Lady Longshore, you will have Mr. Timms, who sweeps one of the principal crossings in St. James Street. On your left will be Mr. Pudbrook, who edits that serviceable kitchen weekly, Happy Homes. But the table is oval, and we hope that the conversation will be general. Well, it's not half a bad idea. Let me look at the rest of them. She snatched the plan from the secretary's hand. Thank heaven I haven't got Eustace Richards. Those mummers make me angry. Here, who's this? Monsieur Renard had just been announced. That, said Ferguson in a low voice, is Monsieur Renard, better known as the unconquerable Belgian. You may have seen him on the stage. Quite a good deal of him, nem trop, said the Countess. In the meantime, the Belgian extended a hand like a twenty-pound York ham. He was an enormous athlete whose sweet temper had not yet been injured by his prolonged war with fat. He was of great simplicity, and his forehead ran back at a gentle slope from his eyebrows to the back of his head. Intelligent? Mais que voulez-vous que je vous dise? 
Can one have everything? His clothes were of the best quality and of the latest fashion. Let us be content. Duncan Garth grasped some of the extended hand. This is most kind of you, Monsieur Renard. We've all admired your prowess and are delighted to have the chance to know you a little better. The Belgian was slow and self-possessed. Thank you, he said. We shall have to behave ourselves, laughed Garth, or you'll be throwing all of us out of the window. But no, said the unconquerable seriously. That will not be so. My manager does not permit me to do anything of the kind unless arranged with him. It would be an excellent advertisement, said Garth. Just you think it over. He turned to some new arrivals. At this moment, Ferguson laid a manicured hand on the Belgian's almighty arm. Pardon me, Monsieur Renard, but the Countess of Longshore is most anxious that you should be presented to her. That is all right. I come, said the placid wrestler. The new arrivals were Miss Bostock of the post office, Sir Edwin Goodchild of Harley Street, and Mr. Pudbrook of Happy Homes. Miss Bostock was tailor-made, smooth-haired, rather hygienic about the boots, and wore pince-nez. She looked as if she would have been handsomer if she had been happier. Her voice shook a little as she responded to Mr. Garth's most respectful salutation, but her nervousness was not too apparent. "'Is... is the archdeacon here, Mr. Garth?' she inquired. "'He used to know my father slightly.' "'The archdeacon regrets. A conference up at York.' But that is Mrs. Pringle just coming in. Let me take you up to her. Sir Edwin Goodchild took Mr. Garth's secretary aside. I say, Fergie, he said, what the deuce is all this? This, said Ferguson innocently, this is a private reception room at the Ritz. Style, Louis Cannes or thereabouts. Through those folding doors, when at the appointed time they are opened, we enter the luncheon room. There we eat huitres lucolis, consommé norvégienne, fillets, now, don't talk nonsense. Nonsense, man. Considering I constructed the menu myself, I... Yes, but the people. Look at that lot just come in. My poor lost sheep, I'll tell you just two things. Firstly, we are eccentric millionaires. Secondly, you will be seated at lunch between Colonel Harriet Stokes of the Salvation Army and Miss Paul, a manicure lady. Let me out. This is a nightmare. No, it's a fact, and I'll prove it to you by introducing to your kind attention Mr. Pudbrook, the editor of Happy Homes. He somewhat interferes with your profession by giving remedies for blackheads and indigestion in his paper on alternate weeks, but don't let that prejudice you against him. Certainly the lot to which Sir Edwin referred looked strange enough in their present entourage. Mr. Timms wore a complete suit of black broadcloth, alleviated by new brown shoes, white socks, and a very large crimson silk handkerchief. His expression combined curiously the confident and the furtive. Those in his immediate neighborhood were conscious of a blended fragrance of benzene and yellow soap. A white-faced woman with big eyes, severely uniformed, was in conversation with him, and Mr. Timms was choosing his language with unusual care. Miss Edith Stunt, the suffragette, had faced meetings in Trafalgar Square and had nothing more to fear. Her fanatical eyes looked round eagerly for an opportunity to say a good word. At present, Duncan Garth was talking to Mrs. Gust, a nicely dressed lady, slightly mad. The death of her husband under treatment had not shaken her faith in Christian science, any more than his life had shaken her belief in matrimony. Garth himself had discovered her and had directed that she should be of the party. Miss Vera Paul, the manicurist, was talking to Ferguson. She was a remarkably pretty girl, but there were many others who wished to speak to Ferguson. He handed her over to Mrs. Pringle, 
and promised her that she should be next to him at luncheon. The unconquerable Belgian bore down on Ferguson, carrying in his hand a copy of the menu, with which Ferguson had thoughtfully provided him. He tapped it with a heavy finger and said plaintively, "'You excuse me. I cannot eat much this food.' Ferguson's suggestion of a porterhouse steak was accepted. At the same moment, Timms approached him with care, as of one who stalked big game. "'You'll keep your eye on me, sir,' said Timms. "'You told me it was strite, and it's to you I looks. I don't want to do anything I didn't ought.' "'My dear chap,' said Ferguson with candor, "'we want you to do the things you didn't ought.' Timms would have pursued the conversation, but he was put aside by Miss Edith Stunt, who wished to know if she would have an opportunity to say a few words to the company and she was put aside by Harriet Stokes, who wished to know if she could send round a collecting card, and Harriet Stokes was obliterated by Mr. Pudbrook, who wished to know if he could get a few words on private business with Mr. Garth. Then came the arrival of the last guests. Mr. Eustace Richards made a splendid entrance. He was a quarter of an hour late, and gracefully apologetic. "'An unexpected rehearsal, my dear fellow,' he said to Garth, in a clearly articulated whisper that carried to every part of the room. Royal command for next Friday. Quite unexpected. Gratifying, eh? The big folding doors opened. Ferguson flew around with his plan of the table, showing people where they were to sit. So far, Mr. Eustace Richards had hardly glanced at the company. He did not look much at the audience when he was acting, and he was almost always acting. But now he murmured to Garth, my dear fellow, you warned me, but what have you done? Don't quite know yet, said Garth dryly. Mr. Ferguson had his own little suite of rooms at the house in Park Lane. He dined at his club that night and was back again by nine o'clock to check once more some figures of considerable importance. The work only took him a few minutes, and he was just finishing it when Duncan Garth entered, wearing the dinner jacket and black tie of the domestic life. Hello, said Ferguson. Thought you were dining at the Silchesters. So I was, said Garth dejectedly, but I didn't. He selected a cigar from his secretary's cabinet. Cheaper for you, anyhow, said Ferguson. His grace meant to borrow money tonight. I'm not a fool, said Garth wearily, and I'm not lending money to the Duke of Silchester. How did you think it went this afternoon? What, the lunch? Of course it was very, very funny. Or slightly tragic, said Garth, as he took an easy chair. Put people into new circumstances, and you can always judge them. I've got a low opinion of the human race tonight, Fergie. But there were nice points, said Ferguson. I like the self-centered, complete indifference of our friend Reynard. He's a headless Hercules. I mean, his head is the only thing against him. It's a loss, too, that is easily excused. You saw how Lady Longshore and Mrs. Pringle and Colonel Harriet Stokes of the Salvation Army were anxious to please that lump of beef. Of course I saw it. That's one of the reasons why I call the thing a tragedy. By the way, you can go over our list and draw a line through the Archdeacon and his wife. Certainly, said Ferguson. Might one ask why? Because I hate the type, said Garth. Miss Bostock's father was a curate, had been at college with the Archdeacon, and knew him fairly well. Mrs. Pringle snubbed Miss Bostock. She was afraid that she could not remember all the curates that her husband might have happened to meet. She also snubbed Pudbrook. When she saw the nature of the party, she would have left, but for Lady Longshore, who, to do her credit, does not care one curse about anybody on this earth or elsewhere. She was almost affectionate to Tim's when Lady Longshore repeated his stories. 
she was quite nice to your manicurist girl she recognized the charm of the unconquerable belgian but she snubbed miss bostock and she snubbed pudbrook she admits the hopeless and snubs the hopeful she is a mixture of the coward and the bully i don't like it and i've no more to do with it strike them off Fergie. i shall feel happier when it's done ferguson took down an alphabetical list turned up the letter p and put a black ink cross where it was required i wonder what this has cost you he said cheerfully you paid the bill nothing anyhow the salvationist got a subscription and so did mrs gust the suffragette also hit you i think you have promised to be manicured mr pudbrook owns half his paper and the printer owns the other half they are not doing too well and they are thinking of a limited company you know best how far you've come into it eustace richards in spite of his jabber has done no good with his last two things he stayed with you for some time if he was not suggesting that you should release him from the people who are financing him at present then of course it's my mistake you're a clear-sighted chap said garth and you've mentioned nothing which is very far out there are even some things which you might have mentioned and have omitted they don't really matter i've done what was wanted i've even shown lady longshore how to make the money she wants but that's not what's worrying me give it a name said ferguson the door opened a young person by the name of bostock wishes to see you sir said the butler i have told her that you are not in the habit of seeing people at this time of the evening but she seemed rather pressing in here please said garth let's see said ferguson miss bostock left before the show was over she did said garth and i want to know why in the meantime the butler had returned to miss bostock with a totally different manner so far as the rules went he had made no mistake but there were exceptions of course on sight miss bostock was a young person on further investigation she was a young lady whom mr duncan garth wished to see and that made a difference she entered the room with perfect composure wearing the same clothes that she had worn at the luncheon party perhaps i shouldn't have come she said but there are things i want to say i want to know why you did that you'll sit down won't you said garth what is it precisely we are talking about why did you give that luncheon why did you make me come to it i refused at first you know then mr ferguson came to see me and persuaded me he told me the archdeacon was coming and that seemed like a mutual acquaintance i think that if he had been there he wouldn't have been as rude to me as his wife was i dare say if i had told her i was a general servant she would have been as sweet to me as she was to that half-drunken crossing sweeper or that belgian brute or some of the other people whom you ought not to have asked me to meet yes said mr ferguson cheerfully lady longshore also is very unconventional isn't she i'm not speaking about that said miss bostock doggedly the rudeness of that lady to me is a small personal matter easily forgotten it's the ghastly humiliation of the whole thing that makes me sick and savage there was a moment's silence ferguson said garth there was that letter yes said ferguson i'll see to it and passed out of the room now then said garth what's the trouble miss bostock the trouble is that the whole of us were merely a show got up for your amusement you gave us a lunch that we might make fools of ourselves fish out of water are very absurd aren't they but it's cruel to take them out of water and to watch them dying all the same that luncheon party was the most brutal thing done in london to-day and you were the brute who did it what harm was i doing why did you drag me into it five or six weeks ago said garth i met you for the first time it was in the post office you asked me if i'd got any eyes in my head 
I remember now, said Miss Bostock. I ought not to have said it. I think the tick of the telegraph gets on my nerves. You were not the first, too, and the notices were up clear enough. Still, why couldn't you have reported me? That would have been the right way to punish me. No, said Garth. I did not want to punish you. I distinctly liked the spirit and the temper with which you spoke to me. You will understand, perhaps, that I get rather too much of the other kind of thing. I had no wish whatever to humiliate you. I did wish to amuse myself. You may be glad to hear that I have not done it. Is there anything I can do? Nothing now, said the girl contemptuously. I think there is, said Garth, and rang the bell. He sent the servant to fetch Mr. Ferguson. I say, Ferguson, said Garth, can you tell me what the price of that luncheon was? Eight shillings a head, exclusive of the wine, of course. Let me see, Miss Bostock, said Garth. I think you drank water. Yes, yes, I see it now, said Miss Bostock eagerly. She fumbled clumsily at her pocket and produced an emaciated purse. She took out half a sovereign. There's your money. Can you give me change? Garth did not carry money. Ferguson handed Garth a florin, and Garth gravely handed it to Miss Bostock. Now I can breathe again, she said. I'm going now. Good night. Garth followed her out along the corridor and into the hall. Servants were waiting at the door. A sign from Garth dismissed them. As he held the door open for her, she turned to him, hesitated, and then spoke. I thought at lunch today that the doctor was the only gentleman there. I, I am not so sure about it. If I were ten years younger, said Garth, I think I should ask you to marry me. Good night. He stood watching her as she passed down the steps into Park Lane. End of section three. Recording by Colleen McMahon.